Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts and occasionally wider into the combat sports space. I bring that up this time because there's a decent chance I'm going to spend more time talking about Bud Crawford and uh, Sean Porter than I will any of the individual fights from the UFC event last night, and that should be... Well, the reason for that should be fairly clear. Anyway, my name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm very, very glad that you're all here. Uh, I don't talk a lot about the behind-the-scenes numbers and stuff like that, because, well, frankly, as long as there's anyone out there listening, I'm happy to continue doing this. I've n- I don't, I'd say I don't care about how many people listen, but I'm very aware that this is not the biggest MMA-related podcast in the world, not by a long shot. But I don't know what happened over the last, you know, the last month or so, but uh, we've grown pretty significantly here. I mean, I'm not going to go into specifics because uh, it's somewhat immaterial in the grand scheme of things. It, and uh, I know that you need significant numbers to actually make any kind of real impact in the in this kind of space. And I don't have what I would consider to be, you know, giant numbers, but uh, there was some significant growth over the last little bit, and I just wanted to, before we get into the stuff, because, well, frankly, I'm not terribly interested in most of the, event, uh, the results from this last card. I'm, I'm going to talk about them, I promise. You're going to get the usual spiel. But I, if I'm ever going to take a t- some time to thank you guys... I mean, I always do every week, and I always mean it every week, but I can take a second or two here without extending the runtime for this particular episode too much, and just say thank you again. Um, We, again, I I don't want to get into specifics because that's a little bit, I don't know, tacky. It, It always feels weird, but we have seen a lot of growth over the last little bit. Uh, and for a small show, that means a lot. And again, I love you guys, and I thank you for it. And I don't, I, I don't say this to disparage what uh, I do here, but I'm aware of, you know, small fish, and I'm okay with that for the most part. I would like for it to be more, of course, but a degree of realism is healthy about stuff like this. And you guys have helped grow this show a lot over the last handful of weeks, and I wanted to take a second and just say thank you to everyone who's done that. Welcome to anyone who might be newer. Uh, I appreciate all of you. You New, old, uh, thank you very, very much. If you could continue interacting with the product a little bit however you can, like, comment, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, that all helps a great deal, so I just wanted to take a brief moment here as we are in here in the United States this is Thanksgiving weekend I know all you Canadians out there had it last month uh, but as I it seems appropriate to be uh, to express my gratitude for all of you and for what you've uh, for your patronage and for your support for the show however you can lend it I, I really do really do mean that so I thank you all sincerely uh, the I had to double-check some of the numbers that I saw the other day when I 
when I uploaded uh, one of the last shows, like, wait a minute, is that, a and it, it's accurate, so I just, I thank you all, and, and I deeply, deeply mean that, so, my sincere gratitude to all of you, please keep up the good work, um, the reviews on, if you're listening on um, iTunes or Apple Podcast, it's Apple Podcast now, star ratings and, rev- and written reviews are indescribably helpful because... Everything's run by the algorithm over there, and that doesn't, and that's kind of what helps all that stuff show up in search engines, what's get prioritized, and all that jazz. So that all helps a lot wherever, whatever podcast service you happen to be using. I thank you sincerely for everything that you do. Please continue to do so, and it it all helps. And just again, a, a sincere thank you. All right, so on the agenda for this evening, UFC on ESPN Plus 56 was yesterday. Boy. Um, yeah. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Terrence Bud Crawford and Sean Porter, which took place later that same evening in the boxing sphere. So that's it. It's been, kind of, again, a little bit quieter on the news front. I'm not going to... It's not that there's been nothing that could be discussed on the news front, but I tend to limit my discussions here to real things. And I don't say this to demean or diminish anyone who chooses to give time to other things. When it comes to space like this, I, this is not me uh, looking down my nose at anyone. It's how I choose to run this show. If I were, If this were a different show, then I might spend time talking about... Uh, some of the things Conor McGregor said recently. Or the latest Twitter spiel that John Jones has been on. But frankly, I don't care. And I don't feel like talking a whole lot about it here. I, I've got to imagine most of you aren't all that interested in what I would have to say either. Because that stuff doesn't really interest me. And if things get seriously newsworthy, they will of course show up here, but... Twitter spats or whatever John Jones does on social media, which, um, yeah, he, I mean, look, the man had a, he's been on a, uh, a bit of a spiel lately, so if you've been loosely aware of John Jones's presence on Twitter, you know what that means, and if not, you might be better off, quite candidly. So I, there's not a whole lot of news. I mean, something could break while we're recording, so we'll wait and see uh, while, as I'm talking here. But uh, we're probably going to be light on the news this week. I mean, I might do a, again, there might be a few quick roundups, but not a whole lot. So mostly limited to fights this week. There is no event uh, this coming Saturday on the UFC side of things. Uh, the much-delayed... And much ballyhooed lightweight boxing fight between champion Teofimo Lopez and uh, uh, Lopez and Cambosos. That was it. Which is a strange saga in and of itself. Cambosos became the mandatory challenger after Lopez defeated Vasily Lomachenko. Great fight. Um, Lomachenko wasn't satisfied with what his promoter, I believe that was Bob Arum, uh, top rank was putting up for the purse, so they went to a purse bid between the two of them. The recent entry into the boxing landscape, uh, Triller, about which the less said the better in some respects, 
put in a significantly higher purse bid than everyone else. Uh, by a not again by a non-trivial margin. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm still. I'm over the cold physically, but it was one of those chest cold. It wasn't COVID, unless anyone think that. It was one of those kind of head colds that now just I'm still coughing up stuff on occasion. So I apologize if I sound a little bit weird. Uh, Triller wound up defaulting on their purse bid, so they paid a chunk of change to Lopez and Cambosos. It then went to the next highest bidder. I believe they're on DAZN. And, but that fight was supposed to happen several months ago. Uh, then Lopez had a brief bout of COVID. Triller was jerking them around about the date. Um, it's finally going to happen. Whether Lopez actually sticks around for one more fight at lightweight, which would potentially be a rematch with Vasily Lomachenko, or if he just bumps up to 140... Uh, which has long been speculated. He's a... The weight cut to 130... What is it? 135-ish, I think, for lightweight in boxing. Um, that's not an easy weight cut for him. It's long been speculated. He's going to wind up at 140... 147, maybe. Or 48. I think it's 148. Um, which would be... Uh, featherweight. Featherweight? No... Featherweight's one down. Welterweight. Took me a minute there. Featherweight's 125 in boxing. Yeah. Again, it's 125 or it's 126. I can't remember which. So forgive me. There's some of those numbers. They get a little bit wonky. But 140 and then the one... Because um, welterweight is where a lot of the greats right now are. You have Bud Crawford, the aforementioned guy who we'll talk a little bit about, and a few others. Um, Errol Spence. Devin Haney. Um, who's the other one? Get Shakur Stevenson probably making his way up there. Uh, there's a lot. Javante Davis, maybe. Davis is a weird case. Um, but you get a lot of talented guys in the uh, in and around 140 pounds. So 140 and then up one more weight uh, weight class potentially. Uh, you can see nothing like 154, which is middleweight, I think. I believe that's correct. Anyway, point being, uh, Lopez will, is due north of 130, again, like 135, 136 is where he is now. He's due up another weight class. He's a big guy for that weight class in terms of his frame. So whether he sticks around or not uh, remains to be seen. He's probably going to hurt Cambosos, but that will be on Saturday. No UFC event is the long and the short of that. So just the review, just a couple of reviews here tonight. Let's jump into that. Longer than usual intro, but I hope you all all indulge me in that respect. Last night, UFC on ESPN plus 56. Um, this card, man. This card. There were 11... Let me just put this out there. There were 11 fights. There were 10 decisions. Now... That doesn't mean all the fights were bad, but anytime you have that many decisions, uh, it just drags, you know, because th they're not all going to be great fights. They can't. And uh, look, it was a slog. It was a bit of a slog of a card. It took forever, no small part, because everything went the distance. Uh, your main event, Ketlin Vieja defeats Misha Tate via unanimous decision, 248-47s, 46 um, doing this live, I was 49-46 for Vieja. I gave Tate the fourth. I'm not sure how... 
Uh, I'd have to rewatch this fight to really kind of dig into this. I, um, I think one of the other, I can't remember, either two or three. I again, some of these just ran together. It might have been the second round that was also close. Uh, the point there is 48-47 for Vieja isn't, um, I'm not screaming about it. I don't think that's being, uh, like, overly generous to Misha Tate. I, there were some people online whose scorecards for this were ass. Um, there were some people like, oh, you know, going into, like, going into the fifth, like, it's three to one Tate. No. You could be, again, Best case scenario was 2-2. I don't... I don't think there was an argument for Tate winning this fight. Um, Certainly after the fifth. If you had it even going into the fifth, I can see that. I don't agree, but I can see it. Uh, The fifth round universally went to Vieja, so... I, I, I don't think there's a reasonable way to score this fight for Tate. Doing this live... I was deeply, deeply frustrated and horribly disinterested in this fight. This was not a very good fight, I think, by most reasonable standards. Now, let me be clear about that. If you out there listening thought this fight was highly enjoyable, if you were entertained by this, if you were engaged, everything that I'm about to say should not change the fact that you enjoyed it. This is me speaking for myself and me speaking for what I observed. If that doesn't matter to you, if you came out, if you watch this and still went, boy, that was gr- that was you know a lot of fun. I was thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Okay, not not gonna browbeat you, not gonna insult you. We're good. I, I just want everything that's about to follow to be to make that very very clear. Uh, because I I did not enjoy this fight as a as a viewer. This fight felt like, for long stretches of time, it was competing to see which of these two would consistently make the worst decisions. Um, Vieja did a lot of backing up, and I don't under—I shouldn't say I don't understand why. Let me let me clarify the following. Um, Misha Tate can't fight backing up. It has always been a pretty big chink in her armor. Now, the danger in in pressing her is she can time a double leg, and Misha's got good takedowns. Uh, so you don't want to be reckless. But Vieja just spent huge portions of this fight backing up and circling. To her credit, her jab was fairly effective. She busted up Misha's face pretty badly by the end of this. Um, Tate's nose was leaking all over the place, and her left eye was cut, possibly uh, some kind of fracture, because that thing was swollen. Almost shut. Uh, The longer this went, the more Vieja really kind of found what was working. Uh, I think... I just think that she made this harder on herself than it needed to be. Uh, Tate didn't have too many entries. Tate tends to come in one of, like, two ways when she wants to enter the enter into striking distance. Um, and here, 
she, it took her a while to figure out how to negotiate into the, not full on in the pocket, like infighting, pocket fighting, but just into kind of punching distance. Once she did, uh, anytime these two kind of got flat-footed and traded, that's where Tate found a degree of success with her punching. Not saying it was great, but she found some success. I still think she was outgunned there. Um, and to Vieja's credit, she realized that and kind of went, okay, if she comes in, I'm just going to keep moving. So, because at the end of my punching range, Misha Tate is kind of getting chewed up. Vieja's lack of output was a problem. I think that muddied a lot of the waters for a lot of people who were just watching. Um, Tate didn't land a whole lot to my eyes. Uh, not to say she didn't land anything, she did. Especially around, like, two and part of three, before Vieja kind of got a better feel for how to keep pivoting and moving. Uh, but... There's a much easier way to win this fight if you're Ketlin Vieja, and it, it just involves more forward motion. Anytime she was going forward, Tate had basically nothing for her. And it led to her taking... I mean, she got chewed up even on the counter. When, when Tate's counter game is all she has to rely on, and she doesn't have a good counter game, I just think Vieja took the most difficult path to get to victory here. And... That's a, it's a weird thing. Vieja does not have, has not demonstrated to this point, clarify, has not demonstrated to this point tremendous fight IQ. Now, her, her last loss, which was uh, the fight with Yana Kunitskaya, um, that was a slightly controversial decision. I don't remember how I scored it. I think the problem that she ran into was she was able to get takedowns against Kunitskaya, but did nothing. And I appreciate the fact that takedowns are relevant and that they do score points. But if you're not able to pass and you're not able to affect damage, and all you are is hanging out in the other person's guard and they're doing stuff and you're not, you're kind of still losing. Uh, top position is only as valuable as you make it with what you do. Now, this changes depending on how dominant the position is. But especially if you're in full guard, you have to make that work for you. Otherwise, it's essentially a neutral position. Now, you can leverage being on top to do more things than the person on bottom, in some respects. So, in that respect, it is advantageous strategically, but if we're just talking about scoring criteria, uh, you know, if you're on top, I've got full guard, and I beat you up with elbows from the bottom for three minutes, and you don't throw anything of substance at me, I'm winning. Hypo again, hypothetically, this is not to say that, you know, uh, that any of you listening and I, if we were to get into a fight, how that would go, I have no idea. I mean, some of you are... I have no doubt some of you are much better fighters than I am. Some of you, I don't know. Uh, but I, I know at least two of you that are pro that could probably beat me up if it came if push came to shove, you know. Uh, but so that was kind of what she ran into in the Kunitskaya fight. Her only other losses to Irene Aldana. Aldana knocked her out with a lovely left hook in the first round uh, in 2019. 
but she still seems to be refinding bits of her confidence after that Aldana loss. She's rebounded well enough, but her last three fights have gone the distance. And this one in particular, it just really stood out to me how hard she made this on herself. Uh, I don't know that she'll ever be able to beat Amanda Nunes. I mean, it's not that Vieja doesn't have skill. She does, but... And she would not fight Amanda Nunes the way that she fought Misha Tate. You don't have to worry all that much about Misha Tate striking. You just don't. Contrast, Amanda Nunes will put your lights out. So I, the strategic approach would not at all be the same. But there's a degree to which you have to look at a lot of these top contenders and go, what are you showing that gives me reasonable belief in your ability to contend with Amanda Nunes? Not necessarily that I can look at you and say you're the one to beat her. Someone, Assuming Amanda keeps fighting, someone's going to beat her at some point. That's just the law of averages in combat sports. Uh, but it... It's a little bit more, you know, okay, what have you shown that makes me reasonably think this would be an interesting fight? Uh, and frankly, coming off of this fight, Vieja did not make the greatest account of herself in terms of how she might match up with Amanda Nunes. Now, in some respects, it's a little bit unfair. Anytime you have to compare people on the come-up to an all-time great, this was true of George St. Pierre at welterweight, Anderson Silva at middleweight, Demetrius Johnson at flyweight, John Jones at light heavyweight. There's a lot of the, there's just a lot of people who are going to fall short of that measuring stick. That's why those people are all-time greats. But it is also the only sort of real metric we have. Vieja is probably going to need one more win after this. Um, bantamweight's an odd division in terms of the rankings right now. And look, Juliana Pena might pull off a miracle. If Pena's aggressive and is able to get Nunes down, Pena's top game is really good. And she's really good about, like, rapid-fire attacks. If she's able to force that, she might catch Amanda Nunes in something. Might. I'm not picking her by any stretch of the imagination. I, I will... There's very few women, I think, in the UFC, or anywhere for that matter, who do not react horribly the first time Amanda Nunes punches them. You can see it in so many of these women. The first time they get in there and Amanda Nunes punches them square in the face, it's a cliche, but their eyes get big. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, they are not expecting it. They are not used to it. And it, it, it throws everything off. Even some of the women who are more used to maybe that kind of physical uh, reality to fighting. I mean, look, Nunez did not shock Holly Holm with her punching power. Holly Holm has been punched very hard many times. Even then, there's still the reality that that danger exists. And I don't know how Peña is going to react to that. I just don't. But... We'll see. I mean, we'll have to wait for that fight to happen, but uh, I, I tend to think Vieja will probably need one more. But then again, again, it's just such a weird division. They're just going to start throwing people at Nunez because they need to keep her busy, theoretically. 
Um, as for Misha Tate, look, before I say some of the stuff I'm about to say, let me let me do a few things in praise of Misha Tate, who I have never been a fan of. If we're talking about my fandom, for whatever that counts. Uh, Misha Tate is one of the toughest fighters uh, in the UFC, period. Irrespective of gender. She might be the toughest woman in the UFC if we just wanted to look at the women. Again, might. But look at the abuse that Misha Tate is capable of of absorbing and has been throughout her entire career. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. I was watching live. I was. Co- I might have been covering it when she fought Kat Zingano. This was years ago. And... It took everything Zingano had to force the referee to step in, and Tate was still fighting when that was stopped. Like, Misha Tate will absorb a tremendous amount of physical abuse, uh, more so than the average fighter. Uh, certainly, certainly more so than the average female fighter, and I don't mean that disparagingly. It's, it's just reality, and I, here we speak about reality. Uh, there are, at the moment, it is more women who wear damage well in MMA are rarer than men who do so. Which is not to say that every guy is happy to wade th- to have their face pushed through a windshield and keep going. Plenty don't. Uh, most of them never make it to the UFC, but even some in the UFC, they're just not great about dealing with that kind of physical adversity. Uh you just get, I think, a few, at the moment, you get more women who are less comfortable with it. My observation. Misha Tate is, uh, again, incredibly tough. It's one of the reasons I... I'm going to out myself here a little bit. It's one of the reasons I picked her to beat Amanda Nunes when they first fought. My thought process was Amanda Nunes would win the first couple of rounds. But Tate's toughness would, she'd persevere, and then as Nunes faded, Tate would be able to take over, get her down, and Tate on the ground against someone who is tired, she will find ways to win. That was my thought process. Now, obviously, did not happen, for a variety of reasons. But that that was the thought process, and I was not alone in that. That's just how tough Misha Tate is. And that deserves a tremendous amount of credit, especially down the stretch. The fifth round of this fight, she took a lot of physical abuse. And a lot of other people would have folded during that time period, and she didn't. So she deserves credit for that. Um, I'm not terribly interested in what she does at this point. Most fighters who come back from long hiatuses or retirements don't interest me. Uh, Very few do. But you know, the game was passing Misha Tate by when she reti- when she retired four and a half five years ago. Like when she lost to Raquel Pennington and <clears throat> said, "I'm done." Like the game had already kind of passed her by, and I think it's still that that's still very much true. Um, her style is not a very modern style of mixed martial arts now. That doesn't mean she's incapable of winning fights, but it does mean there's a pretty serious ceiling on how high she can achieve. 
Uh, so we'll have to see what she does next if she fights again. I imagine we'll get a couple of more of these. I don't. I don't think her only goal was I'm gonna win three fights. I'm gonna fight for the belt. I think we might get a few more fights like this out of her, but I don't see her as a serious title challenger at this point. And I think I said on Twitter, you know, if the judges got this wrong and they did give it to Misha Tate, fine. Throw her in there with Amanda Nunes and let's be done with this because Amanda Nunes would do awful things to her. I mean, Amanda Nunes does awful things to most of the people she fights. So uh, that was the main event. It was a frustrating viewing experience for me. Uh, I did not care for the fight as a fan, but your individual mileage will vary. Um, the most interesting fight of the night, your co-main event, Sean Brady defeats Michael Chiesa of your unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. When this got done with the third round, I was sad. I wanted two more rounds of this. Um, good striking from Michael Chiesa. This was the best he's looked on the feet. Uh, he was able to find a really nice kind of straight left. They were in opposite stances. Chiesa fights southpaw usually. And he was able to uh, land that straight left a few different times. Had good timing on it. It was not only you know, a good straight punch. Uh, he timed Brady a few on several occasions. And that was really nice work from him. The problem he ran into was Brady's fence re wrestling in general is very good. His fence wrestling in particular is exceptional. Brady is also physically strong as an ox. I mean, I don't just mean the fact that the guy's bricked up uh, aesthetically. Michael Chiesa is an exceptional grappler. Exceptional. And Brady was able... <coughs> Brady was able to continually control him. And that speaks to Brady's physical strength and to his understanding of technique. The amount of time that he had Kies's back was I mean, a lot of this fight. And keeping back control, especially in MMA, is not an easy thing. It is a skill set, and it takes time to figure it out, and it takes a lot of, ma a lot of time to master. Um, Sean Brady's ground game is... That is a serious, serious threat in this division to a lot of people. He's undefeated overall. There's still things he can take from this fight that he needs to improve on. His striking needs work. His head movement needs work. His cardio needs work. He was pretty well tired by the end of this fight. Kiesa wins the third round. Hurts him a few different times in that round, too. So there's, there's things he needs to address. And if he takes the appropriate lessons from this, uh, that... That will be very, very helpful, I think, if he's able to do so. But that's a real player in that division, guys. That's, that guy's a tough... He is tough. He's durable. His back control is exceptional. That's... That guy's a problem. That guy's a real problem in that division. Um, by the by, the fact that Michael Chiesa ever consistently made lightweight blows my mind. Look at this guy in this ring, in this fight. He is a big welterweight. Like, for this division, he's big. Like, not just tall, but you know, long, rangy. Uh, not a, he's, 
for this division, he's on the larger side of things. And this guy made lightweight? I don't know how. I mean, he did for quite some time. I, I don't know how he did it, but... Uh, yeah, he's... Oof. I don't know how he did that for so many years, but uh, he's a big welterweight. I don't think this was... Uh, I don't think this you know dashes Michael Chiesa's opportunity to maybe get into the title picture. It's For the moment, yes. I mean, this was a non-trivial setback, if you look at it that way. But he's still got a lot to offer. And I, uh, I, you would consider this to be like his last gasp or as uh, overly instructive of what his ceiling is. I think that's a foolish read. Uh, he's still very, very good. So uh, good stuff from both guys. Uh, Brady said after the fight he wanted a main event next to prove he can fight five rounds. I agree. He, look, I got done watching these top two fights and thought they should have been reversed. I wanted ten more minutes of Brady and Kiesa. I really did. Um, this would have been a more interesting main event to me. Uh, so I, I would like to see him over five rounds. He, like I said, he gassed pretty hard. So... Seeing him prepare for a full five rounds, I, I'd like to see that next for him. I don't know who he fights specifically, but he's going to be ranked in the top 10 after this. He was lower coming into this, but uh, I think this is like number 12 and number 6, with Chiesa being 6. So he's going to be top 10. He's not going to have an easy fight next. Uh, I would like to see him in a main event. I, I really would. Uh, next up, our only finish of the entire evening. Tyler Santos defeated Joanne Wood, the former Joanne Calderwood, who just got married uh, to the head trainer, I believe it's Syndicate MMA, uh, John Wood. So uh, congratulations to them, as a, uh, to that couple. Nothing but the best wishes for them. Um, Santos defeats Joanne Wood via rear naked choke, 149 of the first. Uh, here's part of the problem with Joanne Wood, and this is true of a lot of people who come into MMA with a Muay Thai influence. They tend not to move their head all that much. Now, there's exceptions to this, of course, but we're talking generalities. The style that a lot of them adopt, the, the posture and the, the fight stance, it does leave openings to be punched in the face. And Santos was able to find a pretty decent avenue for her right hand and landed it a couple of times, dropped Wood twice, got her back, choked her out. Uh, Santos is, I can't say, you know, the woman to defeat Valentina Shevchenko. That seems like a, that would be a very bold proclamation. But that woman's a legitimate threat in that division. She's only got one loss in the UFC, I think. Yeah, she dropped a split decision in her debut. She's won four in a row since. Uh, over increasing levels of opposition, she's beaten Molly McCann, Jillian Robertson, Roxanne Modafferi, and now Joanne Wood. Um, title shot next? No, but her next fight might be a title eliminator. Like she could be in a number one contender's fight next without too much difficulty. Uh, she's a real problem. She's got good power, strong wrestling. Her biggest, I think the biggest problem she has is she tends to fade down the stretch. 
which is a problem you can address. And if you can stop her takedowns consistently, her striking isn't terribly creative, but it's powerful enough, especially for you know, women's flyweight, to kind of make up for the difference there. Um, she's going to be due, uh, again, a potential title eliminator. So uh, pay attention to Tyler Santos if you weren't already. At bantamweight next, Ronnie Yaya, the old man still kicking, defeats Kyung Ho Kong via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Yaya gets the first and third, Kong the second. Decent fight here. Um, I, I'm just kind of sentimental about Ronnie Yaya. The dude's been around forever. I mean, I mentioned this last week, I think, so I'm going to repeat myself here a little bit. He debuted professionally in 2002. In September, that was his um, that was his professional debut. He started fighting for the WEC in 2007, and he debuted by beating Mark Hominick. Uh, his first UFC event was in 2011, in January. He's almost at 11 years in the UFC. You don't find too many people with that long a tenure in the UFC. Like, it's not that they don't exist, but that's rare. This is just an old warhorse who's got some fun grappling predilections. Uh, watching him is instructive if you like uh, watching how jiu-jitsu translates into MMA. He does some really interesting stuff. Uh, plenty of people more knowledgeable than I am have gone into detail about you know, what he does from his half-guard sweeps. Uh, he does kind of the, uh, the Noguera special, you know, where you kind of are able to pull half-guard, but keep um, but keep one of your arms as an underhook, and then you use, uh, then you're able to kind of scoot around towards the back and either come up on a single leg if they keep their hips facing you, or if you're really lucky, uh, spin all the way around to the back. He does that. Got a good leg lock game. Uh, he got kind of chewed up on the feet in places here, but was able to persevere through it and showed some decent enough striking of his own. He was losing the striking exchanges, but he was not a, just a heavy bag, necessarily. Um, pretty good little fight here. Uh, I enjoyed that. And kicking off the main card, Adrian Yanez defeats Davy Grant via split decision. Two 29-28s for Yanez and a 30-27 for Davy Grant. I believe Tony Weeks turned this in. Fire that man. 30-27 for Grant here is indefensible. Um, what was the round I thought that was close enough? Um, I think the second round, if I'm not, I might be misremembering. Um, there was one of the rounds that I thought Grant could have taken. The others were pretty clearly Yanez. Um, this, scoring this fight for Grant, especially all three rounds, demonstrates a shocking lack of understanding about what was going on in the striking here. It wildly and unfairly prioritizes the sloppy but very visible punches that Grant was throwing versus uh, Yanez's defense, which was a lot of very, very slick uh, sidestepping and shoulder rolling to let those move aside without really landing on anything vital and then countering with good punches. Uh, this, this fight's a little bit of a litmus test in that particular respect about how to properly evaluate what you're seeing in real time. Uh, and I don't say that to knock on Davy Grant. 
Grant put up a heck of a fight here. This was your fight of the night, uh, deservedly so. Uh, I Grant was very, very game here. He landed some good punches. Like I don't think giving him, I think it was the second round in particular, I don't think giving him the second round is wrong. Uh, but I... I just think that the only way you score this fight for him, especially all three rounds, is by using the Diego, like Diego Sanchez logic. And I, that's been pretty soundly disproven at this point about you know, the effective ways of scoring a fight and what really happens. Uh, so, yeah, this was a very enjoyable fight uh, with a bizarre scorecard uh, in terms of that 30-27. Yanez's left ear was blown up pretty badly at the end of this. Like, uh, it got cauliflowered up and badly swollen. Uh, which led to some funny stuff from him at the end where he had to get it drained. Uh, backstage, of course. But this... Uh, Yanez is legit. I mean, Grant gave him a heck of a fight, and Grant's a bit underappreciated as a fighter. He really is. But Yanez is undefeated in the UFC now. Uh, still, rather, not just now. Um, five in a row, I think. Four. Four in a row, four of those finishes. Uh, this is a guy we should all be paying attention to. He's very good. Um, he might be due someone ranked next. So if we're not talking about the top 15, someone, someone just outside of it. Pull up the rankings real fast. Um, yeah, him against like... Uh, so either Song Yudong or Cody Stamen, I think, would be appropriate. If you wanted to be weird, well, weird might be the wrong word. If you wanted to be, uh, you could put him in there with Frankie Edgar, maybe. Frankie's currently sitting at 13. That would be a very stiff test for Yanez. And if Frankie Edgar's serious about continuing to fight, um, would be a pretty big indicator of Frankie's... Uh, of what Frankie has left in the tank, too. So that might be the one to make. Might. But, again, if not in that, like, 13 to 15 space, then I know the UFC official rankings don't go below 15, but if they went to the top 20, he should definitely be fighting someone in the top 20. Uh, he's still got some things to learn. I, his defense is still a little bit iffy for MMA. And I'd like to see him fight someone who's a bit more dedicated uh, in the wrestling department offensively. But uh, he's due a step up, and uh, he's really uh, he's really good. As for the prelims, Pat Sabatini defeated Tucker Lutz via unanimous decision, 30-26, and then two 30-27s. I was 30-26. I gave Sabatini a 10-8 in the second. He spent, like, I think he spent like three and a half or four minutes on the back in that round. And to me, that's deserving of a 10-8. Uh, that's a long enough positional dominance. Especially if the other guy doesn't do anything of substance before that point to, to warrant that. Sabatini's grappling is really good. He's another guy who's really good, especially on the fence. He's good at att about attacking your balance. About attacking whatever limbs you're potentially posting on. Uh... He's a problem at featherweight. He's he still got, I mean, not unbeatable, but that's a really good fighter. At lightweight, uh, Rafa Garcia defeated uh, Natan Levy via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Uh, 
Um, decent enough stuff. Levy had good kicks, but anytime they got into pure boxing range, it favored Garcia a little bit more. And Garcia was able to force wrestling on into this fight a lot. And while his wrestling isn't exceptional, it was good enough to kind of win the rounds and win the fight. Strawweight. Lupita Lupi Godinez defeated Loma Lukbunmi via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Tough style matchup for Lukbunmi. Godinez is a very aggressive grappler. Always looking for clinches, always looking for takedowns, and that's a style that's gonna get that has always given Lukbunmi problems. So, a nice enough win for Godinez, who has now had three fights in 40 some odd days. I mean, the schedule this woman keeps is. Yeah, she has the record for the shortest span between three fights in modern UFC history. She fought October 9th, she fought October 16th, and now November 20th. Um, <clears throat> she's she's still got some stuff to iron out, but she's, she's a, a bright prospect at the moment. At flyweight, Cody Durden uh, defeated Orichi Long via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Decent little fight here. The problem was Durden's wrestling was able to constantly give uh, Orichi Long problems. And when they were at distance on the feet, uh, Orichi Long was kind of lighting him up. Uh, they said these two were the same height in the tail of the tape. I call a little bit of BS on that. Orichi Long is a very tall, very long flyweight. I'm, I'm Calling BS on whoever did those measurements. It's like when people claim that Frankie Edgar's uh, reach is, I think they call it like 68 inches. Like, someone was way too generous about that. Um, but you know, Durden, the rightful winner at the end of the day, uh, sucks for Odichi Long, who is a mostly exciting fighter. He's lost twice now. He fought Jeff Molina, lost, and then lost here. But I think he'll get another shot. He's the right... He fights in the right style to kind of keep the UFC happy. So he'll, he'll probably get one more, but he definitely needs his next one to be successful. Featherweight, Shyla Nurdenbeke defeated Sean Soriano via unanimous decision, 20-20 across the boards. Good first round for Soriano, but as the fight wore on, Nurdenbeke's takedown just became too much of a problem for him. Wasn't great about being able to get out from underneath... Uh, Wound up losing rounds two and three. Sucks for Soriano, who is still yet to notch a UFC win. Anytime they were striking, he was winning handily, but your takedown defense has to be stout throughout the full 15 minutes. If it's only good in the first five and you face a persistent wrestler, if it starts wearing down, this is what will happen to you. And kicking everything off, Luana Pinejo defeated Sam Hughes via unanimous decision. 230 27s, 129-28. Uh, Pinero is... She's got some decent judo throws. Um, she jumped for a Peruvian necktie at one point. I mean, she's a bit of a wild woman in that respect. Hughes had a decent enough jab, but was never able to really string together offense. Uh, Pinero has a lot of refinement still to do, but... Uh, her first UFC win came via disqualification after... Randa Marcos upkicked her, and she couldn't continue. So, nice of her to get her first, I mean, I hate to say legitimate, but, you know, uh, traditional win, shall we say. We were supposed to get a fight between Ferraz Ziam and Terrence McKinney on this. 
couple of hours before the event, someone in McKinney's corner tested positive for COVID. Fight was called off. Hope the coach is okay and hope that they can reschedule that fairly quickly. So that was the event. I uh, mentioned your fight of the night, Yanez and Grant. Only one performance of the night. That went to your only finish of the evening, Tyler Santos. Um, not a great event. Uh, there's not a whole lot else, other ways to say it. If you want my full, uh, my live play-by-play report, that is up in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. I appreciate it if you would go give that a read or just a click to make me feel better. Um, yeah, not a good night of fights on the whole. I mean, not everything was a dud. That's very rare for everything to be a dud, but, um, yeah, not great. I, I... I got into it a little bit with some people on Twitter. A little bit. I, I say got into it. That might be exaggerating. But somebody... I did the math on this at one point. Is kind of how this breaks down. There used to be a talking point in MMA. And it was a, it was a UFC PR talking point. That it's these cards that you... Uh, under... You know, that you, you don't think all that much. That deliver the best action. Now... There was a period of time, many, many years ago, when, given how the UFC's schedule operated, that could be true. When you could put on a fight night that did not have a pay-per-view or a title fight, a pay-per-view quality main event or a title fight on it, and the roster was deep enough and the schedule was lenient enough that you could get, you could put one of those and pack it with enough talent that they would really deliver. That used to be somewhat true. That is not at all the case and has not been the case for many years. Um, I kind of did the math on this. I went back for a while through how many fights would you consider to be duds on paper, how many of them, and then how many of them seriously over-delivered. And the answer I came out to was one out of every... uh, At the time it was six. About one out of every six or seven. I think nowadays that ratio is bumped up to about one out of every eight. And someone said, there's no way that one out of every eight cards is just duds. Well, there's a few there's a few things we have to break down when we talk about this. No, one out of every eight cards the UFC put on puts on is not a dud. That's uh, is good rather. That that's ridiculous. You know, seven out of every eight events is not a dud at all. But Here's, the quali- here's some of the qualifications. Start with cards that are not good on paper. Now, this is going to exclude a lot of UFC events because a lot of them are pretty good on paper. So start with the ones that, that are limited by that. Then, if we go by the UFC's talking point, look at the ones that deliver great action. How many times does a card that is kind of a dud on paper deliver something special? on fight night preferably more than one special thing and i think when you look back to the history of that it's the ratio is not great look take the entire month of october for stuff that didn't look great on paper so if we so we're excluding ufc 267 it's kind of the only one that needs to be excluded there look at the rest of those cards none of them are good on paper how many of them were? How many of them over-delivered in terms of something, delivering something special, or really worthwhile, uh, in the aftermath? 
I can't think of any. So if we look at the entire month of October as duds on paper, duds in practice, and then we get to this one, dud on paper, dud in practice. You know, we're already at like four for four or five for five that have just not been great. Now, if you're being like, now to be clear, the three fights in a, the three events in a row, UFC 267, UFC 268, and the um, uh, the Holloway and Rodriguez card from last week, or two weeks ago, depending on when you listen to this. That's a great three fights. Like that, that's one of the better three events in a row the UFC's done. Like those were all really good on paper, and they all delivered. So I'm not saying the whole schedule is crap, but if we limit the discussion to events that are duds on paper, and then how many of them significantly over-deliver, look, I'm not trying to disparage the fighters and say that they suck. That's not what I'm saying. That This isn't me, you know, the usual bout of idiots came out of the woodwork in the, result, in the aftermath of this event, you know. The, and you, there are no bad cards. Everyone who steps in the cage is a warrior. Well, look, anyone who's willing to step in the cage and fight, that is, you do owe a degree of respect to that. Not everyone can do that. And, and I'm certainly not pretending that any of the... Look, any of the people who lost last night, if I were to get into a fight with them, they would probably beat the crap out of me. Like, this is not me saying I'm a tough guy. This is me saying... Well, I can acknowledge that that is worthy of respect the same way that I can acknowledge the amount of effort that goes into making a movie that sucks is still, there's still people putting forth time and energy into that. And the people who put in the time and energy who don't get the credit that they deserve are deserving that there is some respect that is owed to the process of that and to the people that do it. And you can say that that's true. And still say a movie is a dumpster fire. It happens. A lot. I can say that there's a degree of respect owed to everyone who steps into the cage to fight. To everyone who's able to win consistently or to stick around the UFC consistently. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. And that's deserving of... That, that is certainly deserving of respect. It doesn't mean that I'm going to kowtow to a night of dull fights and pretend that it was something other than a night of dull fights. That's, again, that's just reality. So, if the ratio tends to hold, I mean, next week, sorry, in two weeks, on December 4th, um, the Rob Font and Jose Aldo card, that has a few other good fights on it, actually. So I would say that this upcoming fight night, not really a dud on paper. Look, I mean, is it the sexiest card you've ever seen? No. Fontenaldo's really good. Brad Riddell and Rafael Fiziev is really good. What else is on there? Um, Brian Barberina and Matt Brown. Blood will be shed. That's a good fight. Uh, you've got some good stuff there. So I wouldn't say that one necessarily qualifies as the, you know, dud on papers. But yeah, it, it's just not true that the, the duds on paper over-deliver and produce some of the best action. They, they don't. It hasn't been the case for a lot of years at this point. Look, can it happen? Yes. Does it happen? Uh, yes, on occasion. But 
It's not as often as everyone likes to pretend. And a degree of honesty about this kind of stuff, I think, is more warranted at this point. Look, there was a time when pretty much every UFC event was worth checking out. The UFC tried to sell you on watching everything that they did. Then they started running basically a show every week. The roster's not deep enough to sustain that as every week being something that ha that is must-watch television. There have been events over the last couple of years that if I was not covering, I would not have watched. Just to be perfectly candid with you. Now, I do watch them because this is what I do. And it's it just needs to be understood by a bigger percentage of the MMA fan base that some of these cards the UFC throws together like this are a little bit like, if we use the boxing analog, they're a little bit like a, a fight night, like some of the boxing fight nights, which are nice, and if you're a, hard, a really hardcore boxing fan, you might check them out. But you know, how much of real consequence took place at this card? You had a few. But look, neither... If Misha Tate had won, they might have hot-shotted her into a title shot, but they're probably not going to do so with Vieja. Sean Brady moving up towards the top of the welterweight division. It's not it's not, not news. And it might be the most relevant thing that happened. And then maybe, what, Adrian Yanez? Um, you know, continuing his rise, maybe. And everything else, you know. I can find stuff to talk about because I do this show. But... If we break this down to be a bit more, you know, how much of this was really all that interesting? How much of this is really going to have an immediate impact on the future of the UFC right now because of what happened last night? Not much. And that's okay. Some fighters need time to build, even in the UFC. Some fighters take time to get traction. Fighters have to build resumes. Sometimes you just keep the gears turning. And that's okay. And some of us watch the stuff even when it's just the gears turning. And some people don't. And that's okay, too. I just... There's a bit of defensiveness that still exists within portions of the MMA fan base about you know, you know, what this was. You know? look Again, look at the month of October. I'm not saying none of it mattered. I'm really not. I'm saying, what did you miss if you skipped... Everything before UFC 267. I mean, that in all sincerity, what did you really miss? I mean, not much. And sometimes that happens, and I'm just going to stress this. That's okay. It's not me saying the UFC sucks. It's not me saying the sport sucks. It's not me saying those fighters suck. It's me saying that we had a confluence of events, whereby we had a bunch of fights in a row, a bunch of events in a row, that just kind of existed. And sometimes that happens. And we can be honest about it without being, you know, toxic. Or toxically negative about it, rather. Honesty is not a bad thing when it comes to stuff like this. Go ahead and be honest. wasn't great. It, it helps us appreciate you know, the stuff that is great in some respects. A little bit of contrast is not the worst thing in the world. But we don't need to be deluded about it, and we don't need to be defensive about it. 
Some football games aren't great. Some baseball games aren't great. So you think anyone, look, anyone who plays in the NFL, the amount of work that takes is deserving of respect by any reasonable measurement. The, wor- the work, you know, again, some of them are terrible people. Some of them are great people. They're people. And that doesn't mean that you don't have bad games or that good players don't have bad days. You know? And we can be honest about it, and frankly, we should be a bit more honest about it. All right. That all took way too long. Let's move on. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Other thing I wanted to talk about. Last night, WBO welterweight champion uh, Terrence Bud Crawford basically fought out his top-ranked boxing contract, top rank being the uh, promotion run by Bob Arum. God, Bob Arum. Sorry. Uh, Bob Arum, if you're not familiar with boxing promoters, is a has been around forever. I look at Bob Arum, and I can't help but see Dana White in some respects. They're different personalities. Dana White's a lot louder, a lot more, uh, a lot louder. They promote different sports, and those two in particular have been at odds on occasion. Um, Bob Arum has been very insulting of mixed martial arts at periods in the past. I think nowadays he's less insulting. He just tends to say, I don't like it, which is not the same as saying it sucks. But But Bob Arum, for those of you who don't know, um, started his promotional journey. God, how long are you going? I want to make sure I get this right because he's been doing this forever. Um, yeah, he began promoting um, in like 1962, 63. Hang on, I want to double check. Um, Yeah, in the, like, the early 60s. For those of you who don't know, he promoted some Muhammad Ali fights. Like, that's that's how long ago this, and now, ironically enough, he promotes Lee, uh, Muhammad Ali's grandson. Um, one of his grandsons, who just became a professional boxer. Like, this guy has been around forever. And... <laughs> he's, uh... He's still going. I mean, he's old as dirt. As dirt. He's 89. 89 year old. Man. But the point being, like, people used to ask him, you know, 20 years ago. So, you know, when he's in his 60s, almost his 70s. In the early 2000s, into the 10s. Like, so when are you going to retire? And <laughs> that man's just going to do this until he dies. And I bring that up because I've. I think Dana White's kind of the same way. I'm not saying he'll never retire from his promotion, uh, but would you be really surprised if Dana White didn't just do this until he was in his 90s? Just a thought. Um, Anyway, uh, Crawford is one of the pound-for-pound best boxers uh, in the world. He's been kind of campaigning to be considered the best, and there's an argument if we go by his skills. He's a... He is a remarkable, remarkable fighter. He can fight out of either stance, which is a rarity. Uh, He's a great finisher. His ring generalship is amazing. And Sean Porter brought the fight to him. Porter's a bit more of a wild man. Uh, But he came in and he had a... He fought, man. 
He won some of the early rounds from Crawford. Uh, he had an interesting change in his stance. Sometimes he was coming in really low, kind of bent over. Other times he adopted more of a really kind of bouncy stance, a little bit more kind of bouncing in and out with his front leg. Um, stuff that like Robert Whitaker, uh, Robert Whitaker does that. You, know, you see some other karate guys do it um, slightly differently, but. Uh, the same kind of thing, you know, Stephen Thompson, uh, Machida on occasion, but a little bit more bouncy. And he was able to kind of alternate between those as a means of messing up a little bit of Crawford's offense. Uh, needs to be said also about Terrence Crawford. When he goes, man, he is terrifying. His precision, his shot selection, he was hitting some wicked lefts to the body that they hurt me just to watch. Like, ooh, ooh, those hurt. He's out of his top-ranked deal now. He wants to fight Errol Spence Jr. That's been the fight to make for a few years. Um, I don't know where he lands as far as promoters go, uh, or if he does a bunch of one-shot deals, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, hopefully they can make the Spence fight. It's the best fight in boxing. Maybe not the best, but one of the best fights in boxing. Maybe the best. I think you could certainly argue it. Um... I hope they can make it. Uh, Crawford's one of those guys who, even if you're more of an MMA fan and don't aren't terribly interested in some of the nuances and the science of boxing, Crawford, I think, is still a guy you could watch and enjoy. So, if you didn't see this fight, really good fight. Sean Porter after Sean Porter's fought all the best of his generation. Arguably beat Errol Spence when they fought. Um, I don't recall how I scored it off the top of my head, but a very close fight. Uh, stopped here in the 10th. Crawford stopped him uh, when Porter's corner threw in the towel after he was knocked down for a second time in that round. Uh, Crawford hit a really nice, just kind of step back, let Porter come in, blasted him with a left, kind of an uppercut. Dropped him, he got up. Crawford's one of the better finishers in boxing. I don't know if he's the best. like Between him and Naoya, in a way. Uh, or you could, you could throw Canelo in there. Um, Canelo's, Canelo's punching power makes it so that he's, he has to be less of a finisher in the way that guys like Inouye and Porter are. Um, Inouye hits like a truck though, especially for a guy his size. But they tend to be, oh, I've got you hurt. Now, you know, now it gets worse. Now it gets worse. Whereas, um, with Canelo, it's a little bit more, he hits hard enough that one punch will tend to do it more often than not. But those three, I mean, those are like your, those are your three of your top pound-for-pound pound guys. Uh, Alexander Usyk should be in there somewhere as well. But those three are like, if you're looking at who are the best finishers in boxing, those three. And once Crawford had Porter hurt in the tenth, uh, his corner, I tend to think, did the right thing stopping that. Uh, Porter announced his retirement afterwards. We'll have to see how long that sticks if it does. But if it does, he had a really good career. He fought everybody. And he gave a lot of them really hard fights. You know, Sean Porter's uh, uh, you know, really certainly no one to trifle with in the boxing arena. So anyway, just some thoughts there. Uh, was a really good fight if you didn't see it. So I'd recommend looking it up if you're so inclined. All right, let's check Twitter, see if anything crazy happened. If not, it is time for plugs. Okay, does not look like it. So what do we got for plugs this week? Well, this past week, 
I reviewed Lock and Key Season 2 with Mark Radulich. The less said about that, the better. But if you want to hear us essentially bury that season of television, give that a listen. Uh, let's see. This week, there'll be a Damn You Hollywood for Ghostbusters Afterlife on Tuesday. So if you're interested in my thoughts, along with Mark and I think Alexis and... Uh, I think Alexis, Haina, and maybe one other person. I have to double-check that. Um, but we will be talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife. That should be a fun sh- movie. We'll be watching that soon enough. Um, let's see. We also have a Damn You Hollywood on Wednesday for the um, movie headlined by Bruce Campbell and Devin Sawad entitled Black Friday. Looks to be a more kind of horror comedy movie, so we'll give that a listen. We'll give that a watch and see how that plays out. Uh, let's see. And Saturday, Mark Radulich and I will be providing watch-along material for Teofimo Lopez and George Cambosos because there is no UFC event, and why the heck not? So be on the lookout for all of that if you're interested in my podcasting goings-on. As for my written coverage, uh, last week, the usual slate of professional wrestling, ditto this week, AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW, they're on Thanksgiving this week, so Thursday will be Fusion, and then uh, WWE SmackDown on Fridays. This last week, again, that same combination, uh, but MLW had their War Chamber event, on Wednesday, so you can get my thoughts on that particular match uh, if you're so inclined. And then, and then again, um, Dark Elevation and SmackDown pretty regularly Monday and Fridays. So if you're interested in my written coverage, there's that. Also, of course, last week UFC on ESPN plus 56. Uh, give that a read if you're interested. On that note, I thank you once again uh, for everything that you've done, helping turn in one of the one of the most successful uh, months in this podcast's recent history. I deeply, deeply appreciate everything that you all have done. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone in the United States. Uh, until next time, stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>